Answer this question for me. When you die and you're a Christian, you go to heaven. Yes, but is that ultimately true? Where do you end up finally? Yeah, the new heavens and the new earth. Did you know that you're not going to be eternally in heaven because there's something that's going to be redone, if I could say it that way, the new heavens and new earth, that's where we're going to be for all eternity. And that's what we want to look at tonight. And we're going to start by reading Revelation 21, the first eight verses. There are many texts, and you may not be familiar with them. I hope to acquaint you with some of them tonight as a result of being on this topic in our eschatology series. Um, There is much to say about the new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65. Um, there's mentions of it in other various places, but 2 Peter 3 is another one, and obviously Revelation has it in 21 and 22, which is the most lengthy passage about it. Uh, but we're going to look at the first eight verses tonight and begin to start your mind thinking down that path. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage or inheritance, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, in contrast, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to see eschatology as something that just salves our religious curiosity. Uh, Father, it's fun to think of what heaven and new heavens and new earth will be like and what we will be doing and how it will be and what will be there and won't be there. But those really aren't the questions of Scripture. Tonight, help us to see the purpose of eschatology. Help us to see what the understanding of what the future holds for us and how that affects us right now, here today, tonight. So we pray that your spirit would guide us and illuminate us, give us understanding and insight that, Lord, we might be different now because of what will be taking place later. And we'll thank you for all this. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. When I was growing up, there used to be an old saying, and maybe you've heard it, It was, someone is so heavenly-minded they can be no earthly good. Have you ever heard of that? 
And that might have been true maybe 40, 50 years ago, but I don't find that. In fact, I rarely see amongst Christians anymore that that holds to be true too often. However, I have seen more commonly Christians who are so earthly-minded they are no heavenly good. Um, And there is a profound interest, and I would say to a problem level, that we are so interested in here and now that we are not looking forward to what's happening in the future like we ought to. Um, It used to be that people were so more heavenly-minded and at the same time, as a result, heavenly good. Um, But that is more rare than it should be. One of the things I read on from time to time is I like to read about Negro spirituals and what came behind them. I like to, in general, wider view, I like to find songs and who wrote them and what caused them to write them and the backgrounds of the song. I find it to be interesting. Um, But if you read that back a couple hundred years ago or even less, um, people who were African American and things who were slaves were very interested, far more interested in heaven than the average Christian in our day. And they wrote songs about it. And you know some of them because they're in our hymn book. I'll fly away. Uh, We shall overcome. The city called heaven. And then one of my favorites that you probably have never heard of, it's called Keep Your Hand on the Plow. And one of the verses goes like this. Want to get to heaven? I'll tell you how. Keep your hand to the plow. In other words, you want to get to heaven? You better stay at it. And, 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 and what they meant by that, and what I love reading the history of, is that as a slave, by and large, most of the time, uh, things were very difficult. They would be abused at times. They had life rough. They weren't treated well. They didn't have a lot of medical treatment if they were sick. And life was very tough for the average slave. And in order to keep their faith in very difficult times, in times that they didn't see any time in the near future ending, In other words, they were chronic. They would write these songs about heaven, about the future that they had, and that someday they would look forward to the time where they would be with God, but not just be with God, but that God would come and that he would bring justice. And all the things that they had endured that were wrong would finally be made right and they would become the victors that their life never outwardly showed that they actually were. And so they began and wrote all of these songs, so many of them, and they would sing them as they worked and as they went places, and they would sing them when they got up and when they get to bed. You know why? It allowed them to endure. It allowed them to keep going in the face of turmoil and difficulty. You know, many people today, and perhaps some of us are in this boat, unfortunately, we're much more concerned about the present life than we are the future life. Not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the present. Obviously, it is vastly important. And it's not to choose one or the other by any stretch of the imagination. But rather, it's to have them to impact and influence each other. But today, what we are wrapped up in most of the time is our 401k and what our retirement will be and Really, as Jesus prohibited us, we are more concerned about treasures on earth than what he said to do, and that's lay up treasures in heaven. I think one of the old preachers I heard as a kid growing up, I wrote this in the flyleaf of my Bible, said, we too often sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the immediate. And I think that's true. Have you ever noticed 
And, and, and I, we didn't do it tonight, and we're not doing it tonight because it's too much, obviously. But if you read after verse 8 in chapter 21 all the way to the end of chapter 22 in Revelation, you will get a panoramic view of the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to see all of these things that are taking place. And as a kid, I used to be wowed by saying, can you imagine gates of heaven on all four quadrants, but they are made out of pearl, but not just a bunch of pearls, one big honking huge pearl. Right? So a whole gate made of a pearl. And I go, that, oh, that's going to be so cool. I wonder if it's going to be so heavy I won't be able to push it open. And I, you know, as a kid, you're thinking all these things. And then I thought about, wow, walls that surround the city made of jasper. You know jasper and the light shining through it. What? Oh, just greater than any prism could, prism could ever reflect. I mean, it's going to be awesome. And then, of course, everybody's favorite probably, streets of gold. I mean, really, streets of gold. But then I thought about it as I got older and meditated on it, and you know I came to the conclusion of? Have you ever thought about it this way? All the things that are so valuable that we consider such precious treasures on earth, jasper, pearl, gold, are used for construction on the most mundane things that we would think of. Opening a gate, building a wall, having a street. See, today we would say our streets, we're not putting as much money as we need to anything of that. Why? They're just made of asphalt, but not in heaven. We take the most precious things and we just pave the streets with them because it's so readily available. We have pearls, and they're not on someone's finger, and they're not put in a, a museum case and said, ooh, wow, millions. Of, no, you know, we build gates of the city with them. Instead of iron, we put pearl in there. We don't build walls with rocks and stones. We build it with jasper. The most precious things here in the new heavens and the earth will just be mundane and very ordinary. Why? Why is that true? Because those things are nothing compared to the greatest treasure of all in the new heavens and new earth. And you know what it is? God. See, we're not supposed to get excited about the new heaven and new earth because streets will be paved with gold, pearls, and the gates, and jasper on the walls. Because they are nothing. They're like asphalt, rocks, and iron compared to who God is. And see, that's what we need to get back in eschatology, we need to get back to the wonder and awe of how great and precious God is, that he is the most important thing. Why? Let me tell you why it was true when Revelation was written. It was written in the first century, and at the time toward the end of the first century, where a lot of commentators think that John the Revelator wrote it, there was a guy who was the emperor of Rome, and his name was Domitian, and he was the first emperor in a long line of Caesars, to have Christian persecution of Christians become full board across the line. In other words, everyone everywhere could persecute Christians. It was the first time, it was the worst brutal attacks on Christians in the entire first century. A lot of people lost their homes, their possessions, they lost their freedom, and many people lost their lives. And there are annals and records of them that you can read, and they've been turned into books. Um, many of them were eaten by lions and wild animals and beasts in the arenas. Some of them were impaled on sticks. Some of them were put up and put tar on them, and they were torched alive to be lights for festivals for the emperors. Many of them were crucified at times 600 or more at a time to line roads to show that Christianity was not in favor. 
So why did they need to read this book? Why did they need to have a grip on how precious God was and the future they had with him in a new heavens and a new earth? Is be- you know why? It's because they faced all kinds of difficulty. But you know how it started? It started with things going wrong in the culture, things going south, and then they began to be looked down on, and eventually they lost their rights if they had any to begin with and they began to be persecuted. If you put Roman society next door or right next to and parallel out with American society, you would see that we, although different from them in many ways, are going down a very similar path. So eschatology is very relevant to us. It is not simply a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by theology. It's about hope. And we need hope today, do we not? We need to cling to hope, the hope that only God can give when we live in a world where things are getting hard to handle. And so in every one of the seven chapters you read in the book of Revelation, in chapters two and three, they were persecuted, they went through difficulties, some were in the place where Satan's synagogue was, and what kept them going, what kept them going was the same thing that kept African-American slaves going, is that the hope that they had a future with God, that someday these things would be different. I.e., Revelation 3.12 says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down of heaven from my God, and I will write on him a new name. And it's not new in the sense of neos, the Greek new meaning new in time. It means new in kind. In other words, there's going to be a new city. If you lived in Rome, someday there's going to be a new capital of the world, and it's not going to be like this capital, and I'm going to have a new name, and I'm going to have a new identity, and I'm going to have all these things, and it'll all be different. And that was their hope. And so let me tell you tonight what I'm driving at. I'll say it to you in a sentence. What you believe about the future will determine how you behave in the present. Let me say it again. What you believe about the future will determine how you behave in the presence. present. Let me give you an example. Two men are thrown into a deep, dark dungeon. One man discovers right before he's thrown into the dungeon that his wife and his child have just been killed. The other finds out before he's thrown in the dungeon that his wife and child are still alive. But they're both thrown into the same dungeon. The first one, a couple years later, he gives up, stops resisting, and he dies. But the other guy, who knew that his wife and child were still alive and would be waiting for him on the other side, lasts the entire 10 years of being in that prison. And he walks out a free man into the arms of his family. Same circumstances, different future. Two men are given a job in a dirty and dingy room, 10 hours a day, doing a very boring and tedious job over and over and over, hundreds of times every day. But they're both promised something, that at the end, they'll be rewarded with a salary for the year. The first man doing that job is said, at the end of the year, you'll be given $20,000. At the end, for the other guy, he'll be rewarded with $20 million. Two months into it, what do you think happens to the first guy? not doing this anymore. I'm not going to sit in this room, dark, dingy room, doing the same old thing, and at the end I'm getting $20,000. But strangely enough, the guy, the other guy, he loves his job. 
He could do it every day. He asked to do some of the other guys' work. Why? Because at the end of the year, what's he getting? He's getting $20 million. Same circumstances, different future. See, what you believe about the future will impact directly what you be, how you behave in the future or in the present. So the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, as Peter says, in which righteousness or justice dwells, is our topic tonight. If you look at Revelation 21, we're going to break it down as it's presented, just in two paragraphs. Basically about the, the old go, is gone, verses 1 through 4, and the new has come, verses 5 through 8. So we're going to look at this promised future that God has for all of us who know him and see how that can help us live presently in America in 2022. So let's look at it one at a time. The first heavens and the first earth, verses 1 through 4. This all takes place, according to the book of Revelation, after the rapture is done, after the thousand-year millennial reign is over, and we are about to go into eternity. God creates the new heavens and the new earth. And John, in verse 1, starts off with these words. It makes it the climax of the book up until this point. He says, I saw. That phrase is used to begin and introduce the last seven visions of this book. Chapter 19, verse 11, verse 17, 19, chapter 20, verse 1, 4, 11, and then ours. Ours is the last of the visions that lead up to the eternal state that start with this, ver this word, I saw. And in these seven visions leading up to the new heavens and new earth, here's what happens so you can catch up and know where we sit. The destruction of the Antichrist has taken place, the banishment of Satan, the coming of the millennial kingdom, the, wait, the great white throne judgment has taken place, the dissolving of the first heaven and the first earth in the last four verses before our chapter. All of those has taken place. And this little first segment, if you can look at your text, if you have a pen, you can see it this way. The framework is that the little phrase, passed away, begins and ends this paragraph. Look at verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And draw a line from that down to verse 4, where it says, No more crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, there it is the same word, has passed away. This first four verses or about the creation in which you and I live today. Um, that's what the brackets are for. And what we learn about this heaven and this earth is this, that it's not permanent. It's going to pass away. Now, we don't have time tonight. I'm going to tell you, though, that this is prophesied in the Psalms. God says that he's gathering up the creation like a garment. It's like taking off your clothes. It's going to pass away in comparison to God who never changes. And he says the world changes. It's all going to be dissolved. But you never change, oh God, because God is immutable. Isaiah, if you want to please write these down for your own. I'm so, you may not know these verses about the prophecy of the new heavens and new earth, but they're there. Isaiah chapter 65, 17 and 18 talks about the very wording of this passage is borrowed from Isaiah when he says, no more pain, no more crying. Also Isaiah 35 and verse 10. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. Can I tell you this tonight? You know why God is so awesome? Because he never changes and his word never changes. See, they're more dependable than the fact that the sun will rise tomorrow 
and that we'll have a heaven. See, as, as, as great and, and dependable as all of that is, it's nothing compared to the immutability, I should say, of God and his word. Peter also says to us, if you read it in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, that all these things are going to melt with a fervent heat. They will pass away. And then he says, based on that, what kind of people ought you to be? Peter knows that the very foundation of eschatology and the new heavens and new earth is this question. What are you, how are you living in light of that fact? John goes on to say this, and it almost seems, if you're not careful, as a little addendum at the end of the verse, and there was no more sea. In ancient Near East times, the sea was often represented evil and chaos. That's why they said sea monsters came out of it. And Jonah was thought to be in big trouble because he was thrown into the sea. They thought that was the end of him. And that was what the world was, full of evil and chaos. And the sea represented that. And interesting, please look at the text. Did you see that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no bodies of water. There will be no more sea, no more ocean, no more lake. Those are things that divide humanity. But here's what he says. But at the end of our text, there is a lake. But this lake, the only lake that seems to go on forever, is a different kind of lake. It's not a lake that's filled with water. It's a lake that's filled with fire and sulfur. In verse 8, it says, Their portion will be in the lake. See, it begins with, there's no more water separating us from each other, but there will be a lake that separates some people from God. And that lake burns with fire and sulfur, and that lake has a name. It's second death. Second death is used four or five times, all toward the bottom or the last part of Revelation. And this is the final seat. So there is a new heavens and a new earth, but there's also, can I say it this way? There's a new hell and a new death. Because when you die today and you don't know Christ, you would go to hell but ultimately, like there's ultimately, we're not living forever in heaven. People don't ultimately live in hell. They live in a place called the lake of fire. And so we get a dichotomy. If you look at this passage carefully, here's what you see. There are two types of people, hear me, and their lives were based on two types of futures. And they lived accordingly. See, I wrote a chart. I didn't have a time to put it on the board for you, or I should say on the screen for you, but I compared them because there's a list that describes the lifestyles, the behaviors. Remember what I said? What you believe about the future will determine your behavior in the present. I'm going to so dare to say tonight that the people who are in the lake of fire had a very different view than what the Bible says of what they thought their future would be. And therefore, they behaved in a certain way. And let me describe what that behavior was that characterizes the people in this lake. Verse 8 says they are cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Now, that just sounds like a, a bunch of people who did a bunch of different kinds of things wrong. But let me say it to you again in context. They are cowardly. These are people who did not stand up for their faith 
when things got difficult and they were persecuted and they let fear control them and renounce their faith. And that's what the next word is. They were cowards, controlled by fear, not faith. Faithless means they did not stay faithful, that things came up in their life, difficulties, problems, or you can read the seeds for yourself in Mark 4, cares of this world that choked them, and they did not remain in the faith. We might say that they were apostasy. Murderers, people who killed the saints. Read Revelation, it happens constantly. Sexually immoral, as not just someone who commits fornication or adultery, although that's obviously part of it, but they were more than less tied to revelation of people who were worshiping the beast, people who were false worship and idols, and very, very often associated with that false worship was a sexually immoral lifestyle that you went to the temple, had sexuality with the people that were the priestesses and the people who worked there as an act of worship to the false gods. And so what it really means is not that you're just immoral, but you're an idolater. And that's why it says later on, idolater, because they go together. They go together. Sorcerers is the word in English we get pharmacy from. Some people believe it's people who are into drugs. But I believe it's more people that were into satanic signs, people that had the power of darkness and could do certain things, even as those who profess to know Christ, who said, have we not done many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. And then liars. And not just people who didn't tell the truth, but people who were false prophets, people who lied about what mattered the most, about who Jesus was and what the truth was and what God had said. I think if you read it in the context of first century, what was going on in the book of Revelation, you'll see that these are very more specific than this, just general titles. This list, if you'll turn over, is repeated and very much the same with very little deviance. Turn to chapter 22 and verse 15. Let's start with verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. But outside, outside this 1,500-mile-cubed temple city, it says outside of that, we're not told where, but outside, not in the new heavens and new earth, outside of it, are dogs, which is used in Philippians 3, 2, to describe Judaizers, sorcerers, here's the same list. Now the rest, after dogs, the list is the same. as 21.8. Sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who, listen to this, loves and practices a lie. So here we have people who believed something about their future, that they would probably never give an account of their life. They wouldn't stand before a God that would be just and holy and righteous. They didn't think that their end would be the lake of fire, and they lived accordingly. And the result of that choice is the second death in the lake of fire. The Bible would term that in Revelation, would call them non-conquerors. In the text, you can see for yourself in 21.7, and then entering 21.8, it starts with the word but. And the verse 7 talks about people who conquer an inheritance because they conquer. In other words, they weren't cowardly. They weren't all of these things 
They didn't side with the beast. They didn't take his number. They didn't have his name. They didn't give in to false prophecy. They didn't believe the lies or practice them. They didn't have a lifestyle that matched the world around them. They were different from that. And because of that, they were conquerors. Can I tell you tonight, please listen. It is absolute victory in Jesus is not optional. It is essential. Without it, you will go to the lake of fire. Read every one of the seven churches in Revelation in chapter 2 and 3. Read, read every one of them. The last promises go to the one who conquers. The Bible in Revelation knows no Christian who is really a Christian who doesn't live victorious. Not because they're perfect. Not because they never make mistakes. Not because they never do anything wrong. But the trajectory of their life is victory. Especially in the most difficult times, that is the true demonstration of the genuineness and validity of their faith. So the Bible says that those who don't go to the lake of fire, can I put the two ends together? Who enter the new heavens and new earth. Remember it says in verse 14 and 22, these are the ones who enter the gate of the city. If you want to enter the gate of the city, you are not a person marked by all these traits. You are a person who is marked by conquering all of these traits. You're not cowardly, you're courageous. See, you're not immoral, you're godly. Just figure the opposite of all those things, and that's what a person who will enter the new heaven and earth is all about. Do you see why the big idea is true tonight? What you believe about the future will definitely determine what you, how you live in the present. So if you believe this, that knowing Jesus and sharing by faith in his victory, it must mean a radical change in my life. It has to be, because the people who act, act like everyone else around them, they'd end up in the lake of fire. So Christianity is not just a ticket out of hell. It is that, but it is a ticket into the new heavens and new earth. And the demonstration of whether that's reality in my life is how I'm living. How does that happen? How does that happen in someone's life? Let me show you in the second half of the text. I saw the holy city, verse 2, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Can I tell you this? The rest of it is about God, what he does in someone's life. Can I say this to you? This is the, the trajectory, can I say that word again, of the story of redemption from the very beginning, it is God coming down to us. It is not us going up to God. In the Tower of Babel, it says in Genesis 11 that God came down to see what was happening with men. And men were building a tower so that they could make it up to heaven. And from the very beginning in our sin, here is the biggest problem. We are not wanting God to come down to us. We think that we can build our way up to him. And the very story of the Bible from the very beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation is the complete opposite of what the average religion today works at. And that is that we cannot work our way to God. He always has this direction. He's always coming down to us. He did it at the Tower of Babel. He did it through Jacob's Ladder, which John 1 tells us is Jesus. He did it in Exodus when he delivered his people out of Egyptian slavery. He came down and looked upon his people and sent Moses to deliver them. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, no one has ascended to heaven but the one who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. Jesus says, you know, the only person who could ever come down and free you and save you is me. 
I'm Jacob's ladder, and I'm the God who comes down to you and where you are. You cannot come up to me. That's why Jesus sent down the Holy Spirit on the church, and Jesus is coming down in the rapture, and eventually he's coming down when he comes again a second time, and ultimately he will come down from heaven for the final time, because that's the trajectory of Scripture. If you are to live in the new heavens and earth, and not be destined to eternity in the lake of fire, you must accept the fact, first and foremost, that this is a religion, Christianity, of your weakness and his strength. It's about you not coming up to him, but him coming down to you. And John goes on, and he does the repeated pattern that's often in Revelation, I saw is followed by I heard. And what does he hear? He hears this great promise that God is going to dwell with his people. He is going to be their God. He is, they're going to be his son. And that is covenantal language all over the Old Testament, meaning the very promise that we lost in the garden, being with God, is going to be given back to us in Jesus. And when that day happens, listen to this glorious truth, there's going to be a lot of no mores. You know why I had you tonight say, hey, when you get to heaven, what are you looking forward to the most? And what was most people's response? The people they love. As pastor, I've probably done 10 or 12 weddings since I've been here, maybe a few more, but I've probably done literally 50 or 60 or more funerals. One is a very joyous occasion, the other very not so. And it's, it's painful, isn't it? It's where you cry, where you mourn, where your tears fall from your face. Here's what God says. Those will be things of the old heavens and earth. Because in the new heavens and earth, there will be no more crying. And I take that to be no more funerals, no more separations. My wife and I were talking the other day, and we said, wow, Lord, if it was right to pray, that we would be like Tony and Lucy De Quincey. You know, 95 and 94 Married 70 years, 70 years. Do you know, Chris, that means you're only halfway there. Oh, <laughs> my poor girl. Um, but they died one day apart. Wouldn't that be awesome? But you know what's even better? That you wouldn't die at all. Now, hopefully the rapture would take care of that. But if not, can I tell you this? We're going to be a part of a heaven and earth there won't be any more mourning or crying. There won't be funerals. There won't be obituaries to write. There will be, all of that are characteristics and things that are wrapped up in the first heaven and the first earth. And that's why in the first paragraph it says, behold. There's going to be no more of that. No more of that. And then he says, let me show you a second behold. Look at chapter 21 and verse 5. The first paragraph has behold to grab your attention. And the second one is this. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. I don't know if you watch the passion of the Christ. It's got some deviance in there for sure of things that aren't in the Bible and things that aren't very well done. But there are some interesting novel things. Not saying it happened because I don't think it probably did. But it was interesting when Jesus was carrying a cross and he was carrying it down the Via Dolorosa, and he drops it under the weight of the burden of it, and Mary is not too far off. And in all of his pain in the movie, he turns over and looks at her, and he says this, Look, I am making all things new. And I thought, you know what? It's just not, it didn't start here. 
And in that sense, they're right. Making all things new started with his death and resurrection. And it's going to climax in a new heavens and a new earth. And by the way, you can be a new creation now. See, the new creation, new heaven and earth, that's cosmic. But you know it's also personal? Because anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Watch. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you see that? You know what your life's to be? Your life is a little microcosm of the whole story of redemption that climaxes in the new heavens and new earth. See, your little life and my little life, by the way we live it in the light of the future, we're to say this, I was an old creation and that passed away when I came to know Jesus. But see, now all things have become new. I'm a new creature. It's not just my destiny has changed. My desires have changed. My deeds have changed. My life has all changed. And you know how you know whether that's true? Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, it is done. Now the next two titles of Jesus are his sovereignty. He's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And as the sovereign God, here's how he says, see, I'm going to give this to this kind of people. Now here's the last thing. I want you to ask tonight, is this you? Do I, based on this truth, have the right to look forward to a new heaven and new earth? Here's what he says. Who does he give this to? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Those are direct quotation, or at least a paraphrase of Isaiah 55.1. Come to the waters, come without money, it says in Isaiah 55, because there's no payment. See, these are people who enter the new heavens and new earth, who are part of God's new creation, and will live and dwell with him in his presence for eternity. Who are they? They are people that have recognized that the gift of the water of life is free. That they don't have to earn it. It's not what you merit. It's not through your good works. But watch, listen to this. What is the very next verse? How do you know if your thirst for God is real? Here's how you know. Not because you said a prayer, but because your life has been changed. You are a conqueror. Do you see what he says? Thirsty people are conquerors. Here's what it means. 21st century. Here's how it impacts your behavior now. People who are going to the new heavens and new earth and will be with God in eternity have a different thirst now. Their greatest thirst is God. Their greatest thirst is not for the things of this world. Their greatest thirst is God. You know how they get their soul quenched? Their soul thirst quenched? They get it in the Bible and the word of God and worshiping and serving and fellowshipping. They drink deeply from the wells of salvation. Be careful though. Listen to the indictment of Jeremiah 2, 13. He says, my people have committed two evils, for they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, here's what Jeremiah is saying. Here's God's people who say that their greatest thirst is God, but you know how they live they are constantly seeking to have their soul satisfied in the wells 
that have holes in the bottom, broken cisterns. Cisterns were rocks that were carved out in order to store and hold water so that you and your animals could survive in the desert climate and heat. Imagine how much people depended on water and how thirsty they were, for it was their very life. And he says, the very thing that is your life, you have built around a cistern that has holes in the bottom. And the more you pour into it and keep pouring into it, the more that goes out the bottom, he says. and, And here's what God calls it, evil. You're not backslidden. It's evil that you have forsaken God, the well that has all you'll ever need and it has no holes in the bottom and in exchange for him and his soul-satisfying life-giving water, you have traded it in for far lesser things that can never satisfy. You see, eschatology is about who you are in relationship to who God is. And that's why the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth is not just a place. It is a people. It is a bride adorned for his husband. It's people that have been, what? Prepared for this. I obviously married my wife and I've been to enough weddings to know that a lot of preparation goes in for the bride to walk down that aisle. It looks so easy, doesn't it? You have the beautiful dress and all that, and, you're, and you walk down the aisle, it looks like it was a piece of cake. Maybe you just did it an hour before you got there. We all know that that's hardly the case. I mean, there are people called in to do your nails, and while they're working on your nails, they're doing your hair, and then they're doing the dress, and you have to have your dress fitted, and you have to do all that, and it's endless. Now, we guys, all we do is take a shower, put our suit on, and show up. You can't do much with this, right? This is what it is. But a bride, oh, far different. She's prepared. And I don't have time tonight, but I haven't even figured it out altogether. I'm not really sure when God says, I go to prepare a place for you. I used to think as a kid, he's up there building things, but you know, I know that's not true. What does it mean that you're prepared? Well, here's what I think part of it is. He's preparing a place for you because he's preparing a people for that place. And that means you and me. Are you prepared? If you die tonight, listen, I know, I know you normally hear that, are you going to go to heaven? I'm not asking that tonight. If you die tonight, what would mark you? What would be characteristic of your life? The people outside the city or the people inside the city because they are markedly different. Complete opposites. New heavens and new earth exciting, fantastic. Can't wait to get there. But what about your thirst? What does it show that you're living for? Because that makes all the difference in the world. Tonight, I can tell you this. Read the rest of the chapter. Get excited about no lights there. God is the sun. He's the temple. He's the light. Everybody's going to be there, and there's not going to be any more sin. All of its effects will be gone, and all the beauty and the design of it, it will be everything that was ever meant to be without the sin that went with it. It's going to be exciting. I can't even imagine what that means about having a resurrected body and what we eat, and will, will my cat be there? I know you're asking all these questions, but don't get caught up in that without getting caught up in the most important thing. Are you thirsty for God? Is he your ultimate satisfaction? Because that's what's true of those who will be there. Let's pray.
Father, we do look forward with eager expectation to the new heavens and new earth that you will create. We're not sure whether you're going to obliterate everything and start over again or remold and shape and what we already have. But what we know is that we want to be there. We want to be part of the bride. We want to be your people, a holy people that will be there in a holy place. Father, we're going to dwell with you forever. So we think that we want to dwell with you now. We'd want to be time in your presence, in your church, in your, on our knees, in prayer, in your presence, before your face. Father, I'm convinced that if we're not those things now, we won't be them later. Father, help us to have that kind of heart, that kind of life, the salvation that changes us, that we could be the prepared people that you want us to be. We ask your blessing, Lord, on that and help us to live our present lives in light of your future that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.